and welcome to Sparks. I'm Maggie Kurth Baker, senior science reporter for 538. This is the second part of our September episode where we're talking about the Goldwater Rule, a long-standing ethics mandate for psychiatrists that bans them from publicly commenting on the mental health of people they haven't treated. As part of this, we all read the 1964 issue of this now-defunct magazine called Fact, which condemned presidential candidate Barry Goldwater as mentally unfit for the presidency, and that was actually what led the American Psychiatric Association to create the Goldwater Rule in the first place. So with me today is Dr. Patrick Corrigan. He's Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the Illinois Institute of Technology, and he's also the Principal Investigator of the National Consortium on Stigma and Empowerment, which is the only National Institutes of Mental Health-funded research center that examines the stigma of mental illness. Dr. Corrigan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about this Fact Magazine article and the Goldwater Rule now because of the way presidential candidates' mental and physical health have come up in this current election. And it seems, at least to those of us on the 538 Science staff, that a lot of people are kind of, you know, at a minimum, violating the spirit of the Goldwater Rule this year. And I'm hoping that we can talk a little about societal repercussions of that and about the science behind mental health stigma. So I wanted to start with a pretty basic question for you, um, and that is, what is stigma? Because it seems like this is a kind of thing we think we know, but that might actually be worth properly defining. Stigma are negative beliefs or attitudes about a group of people um, that are labeled because of a health condition. There's stigma against people with HIV AIDS, there's stigma against people with cancer. In some ways, the stigma of health conditions in the same categories, racism, sexism, homophobia, and the like. What we're, of course, we're talking about today is a stigma of mental illness, which we know can probably be as troubling as the illness itself. Can you, so what does stigma mean then in terms of outcomes for people's lives? Uh, you know, some of these articles are saying that purported mental health problems make Donald Trump unfit to be president. What does that mean for people in the real world when these kind of accusations come up outside of presidential elections? What we're doing is we're staining, we're harming, we're, we're disrespecting all people with mental illness when we um, try to disrespect Donald Trump in that way. Um, personally, Donald Trump, in my opinion, has lots of problems, but it has nothing to do with having a mental illness. And in assuming the kind of egregious errors he does is attributable to mental illness is turning around and stigmatizing those with mental illness. Um, frankly, I think whether Donald Trump had mental illness or not would not disqualify him for um, running for public office. Uh, as a matter of fact, I might have a twist to the Goldwater Rule. Oh, yeah. Which is, nowadays, I think we should be in a position that whether or not somebody has a mental illness should not um, disqualify them for running for office because there's no reason it should. So that was actually one of the things that that came up in our conversation a lot um, because – you know, I was looking at the history and you have Calvin Coolidge and Abe Lincoln, who both have both of them lost a son in their first um, their first administration. And when their second term came up, both of them were kind of in the midst of what would probably be defined as depression today. But they had totally different outcomes for what that meant for their actual presidency. And so I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about what 
a diagnosis actually means in terms of behavior and shared struggles and how that reality compares with the way those diagnoses are viewed in society. I mean, how much is a diagnosis telling you about what a person's actual behavior would be? The, the mistake we make is when we diagnose somebody with a psychiatric illness, we then trade out their humanness for that label. Somebody with diabetes clearly has some impact, some concerns, needs to watch their diet and exercise, but by no means would we think that definition of diabetes tells us in a black and white manner who they are. Um, similar with depression. People with depression have some life challenges, some th concerns they have, but in no way does it suggest that they're capable or incapable of any specific um, task, any specific role, including running for elective office. And what's different about the stigma of mental illness is what you just alluded to, is the minute you get the label, it replaces any broader attempt to understand the person um, um, in terms of their whole being and not just this one small part of them. The... You know, I ended up kind of coming into this research thinking that, okay, well, there might be times where somebody's mental illness is relevant to whether or not they are qualified to be president. And I kind of came out of it agreeing with you that, you know, it's not really all that relevant because of what we were just talking about, that it's not really determinate of what their life is like. And I'm curious about, I guess my question about that now is whether what's going on with someone's mental health should ever rise to the level of, you know, this is going to be such a problem that an expert in mental health should feel ethically obligated to point it out because there've been so many examples in the media this year of, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists saying, well, I just felt ethically obligated that I had to say something. Well, I think you make two points. Um, the first point is, should we ever be compelled to, for example, the presidential candidates talk about their health um, hmm. in terms of whether they're ready to run for office. And so what do we experience in the last week is Hillary Clinton's um, bout with pneumonia, and is that relevant for the press? I could see pros and cons to that. Um, I think the pros and cons to her bout with pneumonia is the same with depression. Um, by no means, other than perhaps people from Donald Trump's campaign, by no means would we say she should be excluded for running from office, but some people might make the reasonable case it's something to be of concern when I believe she's a 70-year-old woman and it's probably one of the most taxing jobs in the world. Um, and it'd be the same thing with mental illness, is if she came out with depression, if she came out with a schizophrenic break, um, it shouldn't disqualify her um, any more than her physical health should. Why do you think that there are mental health experts that feel differently? Because it, it surprises me that somebody who has a deep knowledge in what mental health stigma is and what mental health is would kind of come into this sort of conversation feeling like mental health can disqualify you from the presidency. I... I... I'm not at all sure I'm buying into the fact that these people on the radio and TV have a deep knowledge of stigma. Hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, what research pretty consistently says among the most stigmatizing of professions are psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, that's because we tend to see people in sort of a one light sort of sphere. When they're really sick, we see them. When they get better, we tend not to see them anymore. Um. Um, I really don't have any confidence that these people 
going on the radio and TV or trying to educate the public about realities um, as much as taking advantage to get on the radio or TV. Is the the research that you do on stigma, you know, is evidence about stigma and an understanding about stigma part of how psychologists and psychiatrists are trained? You know, is that is that a specialty or is that something that is well integrated into the field? Um, I would say before we started, for the most part, psychologists and psychiatrists were unaware of and oblivious to stigma. Um, I think for the p- most part, they would say it's sort of pl- a politically correct irrelevance to really helping these people with illnesses. And in the last several years, I think the professions have become more interested into it, but who's really driving that agenda are people with the diagnoses. People are sick and tired of being disrespected and losing opportunities because they have these diagnoses. And so they're demanding their rights, similar to what drew um, America into the civil rights legislation was not good-minded white people. It was assertive, organized, smart black people. And so that's where the big movement to changing stigma is coming from, is, is people with the diagnoses. That came up a little bit in some of the history stuff that I was looking at as well. In in terms of how a person's openness about their own mental illness can change the political outcomes. So you have somebody like Thomas Eagleton who got kicked off the McGovern ticket when the press discovered he'd been hospitalized for depression in the past. But then you have somebody like former Florida Governor Lawton Childs, who was elected twice after coming out about his own history of depression. And this struck me as something that's pretty germane to your research. You know, what do we know about the connection between mental health stigma and secrecy? Yep, that, that's, the, that's the nub of the issue. Um, I think changing stigma is an issue of people coming out. Hmm. Um, as an analogy, um, we're fortunate to have um, the LGBT community much better accepted uh, more empowered than they were when I was a kid about 40 years ago. That's not a function of when my children went to school, they were taught it was genetic and biochemical and the like. It was a function of by the time I, my kids got to school, they had gay teachers and they have a gay uncle and they have gay ministers, and it was out there. And so similarly with mental illness, you don't change the stigma of mental illness by saying it's a biological disorder and showing people what MRI scans look like. It's courageous men and women with mental illness coming out and telling their stories. The difference between uh, Governor Childs and and Mr. Eagleton was probably about 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. So Eagleton would have been at risk coming out gay as he would have been coming out with his depression. Um, back when uh, he ran with McGovern for president. Childs lives in a little bit more informed time. How do we balance the benefits of openness with, I guess, you know, like not putting the onus of being more, you know, solving your own stigma on people who have mental health issues? You know, it, it kind of feels like there is a risk there of being like, well, the stigma only exists because you aren't open about your own thing that can cause stigma against you. So we have a program, um, probably one of the efforts I'm most proud of, developed by people with lived experience called Honest, Open, Proud. It's a three-part program. The first part is for the individual to consider the pros and cons of coming out. And we're quite explicit about it. We do not have an agenda to talk you into it. Just knowing that you you can make that decision is somewhat empowering. 
The second lesson is, is if you're going to come out, how to do it strategically, perhaps how to test other people out to see if they're mental health bigots, which is probably not a good person to come out to. And the third one is your story. Um, we believe, we know the more people that come out, the bigger effect they'll have on stigma. But we also know at the end of the day, like being gay or having AIDS or, or any kind of hidden stigma, it's entirely the person's decision. I mean, in some ways, we'd be buying into the bigotry if we ever outed somebody or made them feel guilty for not coming out. And the good news is there are a lot of people that buy into this. There are a lot of, of Martin Luther Kings of the mental health world who are out proudly and talking about stigma and their demand for dignity. Is there anybody in particular that you would recommend our readers paying attention to? Um, Judy Chamberlain, who unfortunately is no longer with us, um, wrote a book in the 60s, an extremely courageous book, um, talking about um, rights of people with mental illness, which, as I said, was really courageous because back then the idea if you were mentally ill, you were sent off to the hospital and you had no decision in it. Uh, you know, one of the things that we talked a little bit about in our podcast was how mental health has changed over time, even how practitioners of mental health view mental health and how that's changed over time. Um, and to the point that like, when we were going back and reading this Fact Magazine article, I was just floored by how much of it is this weird, homophobic, Freudian, what we would now call pseudoscience. And that made me really curious about how well we understand mental health and mental illness today. You know, if somebody is coming back and reading stories about, you know, Donald Trump's brain 50 years from now, are there things that they're likely to look at and go, you know, wow, that's just complete crap? Yeah. So I'm um, currently writing a book on the history of, of um mental health care and its relationship to stigma and comparing it to the medical endeavor in general and science in general. And in some ways, psychiatry is a science, and so we do benefit incrementally from what the empirical research says. But in many ways, psychiatry is a much, difficult, much more difficult task than, for example, medicine from which it comes or even basic science. In basic science, understanding the planet's is really an issue of instrumentation and good mathematical analysis. You know, when I try to understand whether the Earth is flat and whether the sun goes around the Earth, um, the, the object I'm looking at um, does not interact with me. So in some ways, I could be wholly objective. In medicine, when I'm looking at heart disease, it's much less so. Um, when I'm working with patient, that patient has opinions, has a, a reaction to the tests and the like. But even still, there's some level of objectivity that are possible. In human behavior, the object is a subject, right? In yeah. human behavior, we're studying ourselves. I do not mean, and, and definitely do not maintain, that we want to throw out the typical scientific armamentarian for understanding uh, human behavior and mental health. But it's a lot more difficult task. For the most part, I think right now people would agree diagnoses are, are, are conceptual creations. Um, what does that, that mean? You, 
when you talk about a personality disorder, you really can't hold anything up and point to it. It's a collection sometimes by consensus of well-educated people, but still by consensus. It's, it, it's a collection uh, of behaviors. In heart disease, I can hold up the diseased heart and cancer. I can show you the neoplasm. There is, no, there is not this external entity that is schizophrenia. Hmm. And so I think it becomes both an exciting and a difficult task. I mean, as a psychologist, I find it very exciting to try to put words to this, but um, the level of objectivity that an a oncologist can claim escapes us in some ways. That, that strikes me as, uh, it made me think a little bit about like, things I've seen on social media that, you know, oh, X percent of CEOs are sociopaths, you know, that kind of thing, where it it seems like a lot of these kind of diagnoses and even just discussion about them are being used to sort of fulfill prophecies we have that are based more on what we think reality should be like than what it is. Well, I mean, I think the other thing, interesting thing about psychiatry, especially in the media, is it adds for a very nice story. So saying X percent of CEOs are sociopaths um, is a much more concise way of of somebody to express their concerns about people who rise to the top of a, of a business. But trying to do with any sense of science about it is just not going to happen. So I would, I, I would not think that any um, expert psychiatrist or psychologist could go on the radio or on TV and claim Donald Trump has any kind of personality disorder and be so bold to do that in a setting of, of a court setting where the demand for evidence would be a lot higher. It, just making those kind of assertions, you just can't do that scientifically. But it makes for great TV. Jody Avergan here. We'll get back to the conversation in a minute. But first, a word from this week's sponsor. What's the Point is brought to you by Ring. There is a home burglary every 13 seconds. Every 13 seconds in America. Most happen in broad daylight with a burglar ringing your doorbell to make sure you're away before breaking in. The Ring video doorbell has been proven to stop burglaries before they happen by allowing you to see and speak to anyone approaching your door using your smartphone. And now there's the Ring of Security Kit, which includes a Ring video doorbell for the front door and a Ring stick-up cam, a wireless weatherproof HD camera to keep an eye on all the parts of your property right from your telephone. And a video doorbell isn't just about security. It's a great way to see if packages are being delivered, who's at your door for any reason. For a limited time, listeners to this podcast can get $50 off the Ring of Security Kit when you go to ring.com point. Join the hundreds of others who protect their home with Ring. Get yourself a video doorbell, ring.com slash point for $50 off. That's ring.com slash point. Okay, here's Maggie Kurth Baker again, chatting with Dr. Patrick Corrigan. You know, so as a journalist, I was I was really interested in some of the research you've done on how the media contributes to mental illness stigma. Um, even when the stories that we as the media are presenting aren't necessarily about people with mental illness being bad. So you did this, this study that I read in 2013 that compared the impacts of uh, you know people viewing different news stories. And the one that produced 
negative stigma against people with mental illness surprised me because it was actually kind of about how the state of Oregon was mistreating people with mental illness, you know, locking them up in prison instead of giving them treatment. And I'm curious about, you know, why would a story like that produce negative stigma? Well, I, I think there's two issues behind that. And, and let me put it in context. Um, that um, study was actually supported by a grant from the Carter Center. And so the Carter Center has a fellowship for journalists to teach them how to write respectfully and honestly about people with serious mental illness. And so they sent us several stories. And of the ones they sent us, they sent us this one. Um, as I recall, there was a, a state hospital in Oregon with this typical horror stories of state hospitals. I think they had brains of past patients on the shelves oh and the God. like. And, uh, and the reporter wrote a very compelling story trying to point out that the state is at fault for this traditional historic ways of disrespecting and addressing the needs of people with serious mental illness, and they're true. But in the scope of things and adding it all up, you need to understand what the reader walks away from. The reader walks away again with another story of connecting um, serious mental illness and dangerousness, and that's the heart of the stigma of people's mental illness. What I'm saying is it doesn't mean that guy shouldn't have wrote that story. It just means that some stories, some efforts are going to backfire and makes, I shouldn't say backfire, are going to lead to worse stigma. The only goal is not to get rid of stigma, um, but we need to be aware of it. If, if I might give you another example, um, as everybody probably knows right now, Chicago is in a horrible violent string. Right. And so the Chicago Tribune were to do something on the fact that um, many of these shootings are done by black males. You might walk away thinking black men are violent. Um, as a logical conclusion that's reasonable, surely the Tribune is not trying to say that. But we need to realize that while their goal might be to motivate the police to act differently, some of their readers might walk away thinking black people are dangerous. So what advice does your research offer for you know, how we, the public, and we as journalists, I mean, how we can talk about mental health without increasing stigma? So often I'm very pessimistic about that. Huh. I think if, if the goal through the media is to decrease stigma, and the media has many goals, but if that's one of the goals, the message is stories of recovery. The message is a balanced approach hearing from individual people on what we would call on the way down story and on the way up. On the way down story is all the symptoms and challenges and dysfunctions people with a mental illness have. And on the way up is despite all that, they recover, they achieve, they're able to work independently, live um, in, in relationships with other people. Um, the problem with that, the problem with stories of recovery is that they're boring. Hmm. Is that, you know, it doesn't, it's not as exciting as hearing stories about um, Oregon with these old brains on, on the shelf or the stories, you know, every god awful every time these shootings occur, these mass shootings that we turn around and equate that with people with mental illness. Of course, in the sum of things, the media um, focusing on those stories is actually making the stigma worse. Efforts to talk about recovery are, are not so interesting. That said, it's actually been about four years ago now. The New York Times Sunday um, edition on the front page for about five Sundays in a row had people in recovery 
telling their stories. Oh, and wow. They were really nice, balanced stories. Um, one was a friend of mine, Karis Myrick, who struggles with schizophrenia and talked about her challenges. And despite that, she has a full-time job and mature relationships. And she was CEO of a, of a, a human service agency in California. I think those are really, that's what's going to change stigma. I just think, you know, as you know, when it bleeds, it leads. So recovery sort of stuff doesn't work well in the media. And the alternative health sort of stuff has its problems, too. I mean, at least I think there is some benefit now of sharing with everybody that depression and schizophrenia are treatable illnesses and that you should, if you're depressed or you have schizophrenia, you should seek out help from a professional and both psychotherapy and medication can produce some benefits. But even that is only one side of the story that can lead to stigma because another study we did is we said if you just focus on the fact that depression is a treatable illness, um, people walk away saying those depressed people are different than I am. Hmm. And difference is at the heart of stigma. Because when you're different than I am, you're not better. <laughs> um, you're worse. So it's hard to look to the media to try to change this. That's why I think, again, looking at sort of the gay rights and the black civil rights agenda, I think I look towards um, grassroots sort of movements, the degree to which the public interacts as peers with people with mental illness is the degree to which will tear down the stigma. And just, you know, to put it in perspective, you know, sociological research says the gay community is, you know, depending on the data, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the population. People with serious mental illness lifetime histories are around 25 to 30 percent of the population. So there's a lot more of us with serious mental illness out there. If they start to come out, and they are, again, like Governor Childs, um, that, I think, is what's going to be the big thing to change stigma. Dr. Patrick Corrigan, Professor of Psychology at the Illinois Institute of Technology, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you. Thank you.